Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, the 13th chapter. And we'll be reading verses 31 through 33. Well, let's give attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word beginning in verse 31. Another parable He put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable He spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, with God's help, let's focus our attention upon the Gospel of Matthew this evening. Uh, We're continuing our sermon series on Romans 4, verse 13, that Abraham and his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who are in Him by faith, are the heir of the world. The heir of the world. We've been tracing this theme from Genesis all the way through Daniel. There's perhaps some unfinished business in Daniel's prophecies, but we've decided to press on now into the New Testament as we begin to see the unfolding of this teaching of the Bible that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. That all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. Uh, We've seen this in the book of Genesis, the promises to Abraham that in him and in his seed, Christ, all nations of the earth would be blessed. We've seen it uh, throughout the book of Psalms, all ends of the earth will turn to him. We've seen it in Isaiah, uh, multiple sermons on Isaiah as the nations are gathered in and the mountain of the Lord's house is exalted above them all and all nations flow into it. We've seen it in the prophecies of Daniel as he forecasts the various rises and falls of various nations between his own day with Babylon and down through the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and uh, the Romans and so on and so forth. Um, There's there's a, a timeline that he establishes leading up to the coming of Christ And he says that when Christ does come, He'll be like a stone that shatters that humanistic kingdom of man that Satan has been erecting over all those years in all those empires. And that Christ would ascend to the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And that at that point, through His Gospel, all nations, peoples, languages, they'll all be brought under His dominion. Uh, We've seen that. We've seen numerous uh, passages along those lines. And now we come to the Gospels. And it's important 
to note the unique significance of the Gospels, particularly when it comes to the direct statements that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you have, in some sense, uh, an extreme perspective that's out there where people emphasize the red letters and um, you know you have red letter editions and uh, I'm looking at my pew Bible or my my pulpit Bible here I don't think it has red letters so maybe that's an improvement but you have people that focus on red letter editions and their Bible has to have red letters and everything Jesus says is in red and everything else you get the feel is uh, second rate in some sense but we know that the entire Bible was inspired by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the entire Bible represents the Word of God, the Word of Christ, and again, that Word that was given of inspiration by the Spirit of God. But there is something unique about the teachings of Christ. I mean, if if you were standing in the throne room in heaven and you heard Elijah say something uh, that was... uh, placed upon his lips by the Spirit of God inhabiting him. And then you, you heard uh, Moses say something, as it were, under inspiration. And then you heard the Apostle Paul stand up and say something. And then Jesus stood up and said something. Uh, all of the things that you heard would be true, and they would all, to the extent that they come from the influence of the Holy Spirit, they would all be uh, have divine authority and significance. But there's something about the word from the king that uh, though we might not be able to explain it, uh, though we might not use it to run in the direction of a red letter edition or something, there's something uh, superior uh, about the impact of hearing the truth proclaimed by God manifested in the flesh, the word made flesh. There's something powerful. And we're told that even in Jesus' ministry that no one ever spake like this man. Uh, these people heard John the Baptist under, uh, we could say, inspiration, prophetic inspiration, but nobody spoke like Jesus. And no one had the gracious words flowing out of their mouth like the Lord Jesus Christ. No one taught with the kind of authority that he did. Because, of course, he doesn't simply say, thus saith the Lord, but he says, verily, verily, I say unto you. So what saith the king? We've heard from Moses and the prophets, but it's important for us as we develop our outlook on eschatology and on biblical prophecy and on the interpretation of God's providence in our own day and moving forward prior to Christ's return, it's important for us to take stock of what Jesus has to say. What does the Lord Jesus Christ tell us concerning the advance of His kingdom among the nations. We've heard in our psalm meditation that the psalms are commanding, inviting, uh, uh, alluring the nations of the world. Come into His courts. Worship Him with joy and gladness. And we've seen many Old Testament statements concerning the fruition and the, the, the outcome of that call. That it will bring the nations into the kingdom of God. But what saith the King? Uh, I think in many of the discussions that you see today where people take a pessimistic view of providence, a pessimistic view of the advance of the gospel among the nations, and and it's all doom and gloom, uh, sometimes I wonder how much of the teaching is coming from 
the King? Is this the outlook that Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, set forth in the Gospels? And of course, among the Gospels, there's no Gospel like Matthew in terms of the kingship of Christ. Uh, most commentaries, if, you'll, uh, if you're familiar with commentaries on the various Gospel books of the Bible, you'll know that many of the commentaries on Matthew focus on Christ's kingship because this is a major theme from beginning to end. We don't have time to trace it. We, we went through 275 sermons on Matthew, so um, you can look those up. But the kingship of Christ is the theme of Matthew's Gospel from beginning to end. He's the son of David, and he at the end receives all power and authority over heaven and earth. So what does Jesus say in particular as the king about his kingdom? And for that, we go primarily to Matthew. Now we begin in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is explaining uh, the nature of his kingdom. Uh, So much could be said here, but he's explaining the nature of his kingdom. And in verse 5 in the Beatitudes, he pronounces these various blessings upon the true and living members of his kingdom, those who are true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we're reminded here of the language from our key text, Romans 4.13, that God promised that Abraham and his seed would be heir of the world. And we see in Psalm 2 verse 8 that Christ the Messiah has been given this inheritance. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the Father says to the Son. But here we're told that those that are in Christ are a kingdom of priests ruling and reigning with Christ. And even as He inherits the nations of the earth, even so these meek, believing sinners saved by grace they shall also inherit the earth. And we saw something of that whole dynamic of how to view this verse. We saw that this morning, that of course in the world to come, the earth is renewed and believers inherit all of creation, including the earth. But I think as we get into Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see that Jesus has in view more than just an inheritance of the earth after the second coming, but he's perhaps even emphasizing the inheritance of the earth which believers have in Christ through the Great Commission and through that inheritance of Psalm 2, uh, that all the nations will be his inheritance. And we said when we studied Psalm 2 earlier that Psalm 2 is primarily speaking of people, not just real estate, but people. And that's the idea here. Uh, The the meek shall inherit the earth, the nations of the earth. Uh, There's an evangelistic element here that that we're going to see. Now, that sets the tone. The meek inherit the earth. There's this universal inheritance, this universal dominion of Christ that His people enter into through union with Him. Let's see this as it expands. We continue to verses 10 and following of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you 
and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in other words, these meek, suffering, faithful believers are not going to seem as though they're inheriting the earth, you see. Because they're being opposed. They're being opposed by the world, the flesh, the devil. They're being opposed even within the covenant community. There are people just like in the days of the prophets who attacked the prophets because they stood for righteousness and they're being persecuted for it. And and Jesus is warning His apostles and His disciples in that age and in every age that there is great uh, persecution and affliction on account of the Word of God, even within the covenant community. Uh, But for sure, Jesus is implying that they're, they're here in this fallen world. He's placed them here and they're meekly enduring suffering and persecution. It doesn't seem like they're inheriting anything. But notice verse 13. Notice the distinct function of God's people, of Christ's church, within this wicked world, even within backslidden covenant community. Notice the historical function of God's remnant, of God's people. This is a distinct function in history as opposed to evangelism and discipleship. We can speak of the direct influence of the church, teaching, preaching, evangelizing, but here we have a sort of indirect function of the church. As it's preaching and teaching, here's the effect that it has in this hostile, wicked world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. So you're going to inherit the earth, but you see, as you're being beaten down and oppressed by the rulers of this earth, you need to be the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus says, one of your purposes, church, is to be a preservative. It's a wicked world. It's a putrefying, rotting, decaying world. And the church is the salt, like you would salt meat to keep it from rotting. The church is the preservative within culture, within civilization, within cities and communities and nations of the world. The church is there to preserve and to add flavor and savor in an unsavory, wicked, immoral society full of idolatry and perversion. The church is meant to be salt in that uh, uh, decaying and an unsavory environment. The church also is to provide healing. Salt in the wounds, right? If you have a cut on your leg and then you go to the beach and the salt water, it burns a little bit, but by the end of your vacation, it's healing. And the fact is that the church, as it wounds sinners with the gospel and with its righteous example that wounds their conscience, it is to proclaim that law and gospel to wound and then heal society, sinners, and both individually and corporately. So it is salt in the world. Jesus says if, if you lose that saltiness, what good are you? And so if a salt loses its saltiness, then what happens? People just say, well, get rid of it. Throw it out to be trampled underfoot by men. And you see, sadly, this is one of the reasons, one of the reasons, not the only reason, But one of the reasons 
why the church in the Western world is starting to be trampled underfoot because we've lost our saltiness. We haven't been preserving society. We've been uh, entering into alliance with these decaying, worldly trends and uh, the, the, the patterns of this world. And so we're not distinct. We're not savory. We don't have the aroma and savor of Christ. We're not wounding and healing with the law and gospel. We're not really doing anything. We're useless. And so we're being trampled underfoot. Uh, We can sit around blaming the people trampling us, but I think first and foremost, we should be convicted that we need to get back to the old paths and the truths of God, that we might have a pure and spotless witness. And, And then we'll see Maybe perhaps the Lord will, will rearrange things a bit in terms of the, the power structure in our day. But we're to be salt. Again, this is distinct from our role in evangelism and discipleship. It's assuming we're out there preaching and teaching and doing all the things of the church, but there's an effect that takes place in society when Christian people are living as Christians when the Christian church is acting like the Christian church, when we're doing those things directly that we ought to be doing, there's an impact, often indirectly, sometimes directly, but there's an impact upon society for the better. And that is part of our function in this world. That is part of our role, our purpose. Also, he says we're light. We're meant to illuminate a dark world, a world where people are darkened in their understanding, a world where the prince of darkness is the God of this age, a world that is bumbling and stumbling in the darkness and where even darkness characterizes many portions of the church and of uh, religion, more broadly speaking. The church is to shine the light of the gospel, not to hide its lamp under a bushel, but to shine it. Indeed, the church is to be the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Some of you will be familiar with the famous sermon that was preached when our forefathers first came to this new world and established a Christian civilization with the Mayflower Compact and so on and so forth in New England. A famous sermon was preached. A city on a hill. And it was said that this new Christian civilization would function in this way, that through the truth of God and the righteousness of God and obedience to God in all aspects of life, there would be a faithful witness. And we can sit back and critique things they did wrong, and, and, and of course it's easy to do, uh, but we've always got three fingers pointing back at ourselves when we look at our own society. The fact is, that was a noble endeavor And that's what Christians ought to do and ought to be in the church, but also individual Christians acting out their faith and taking dominion in the institution of the family and in society and uh, the state as well. So Jesus tells us that there's an important influence that the church is to have in the world around us. That's very important because there are many people who want to limit the church's role merely to gathering the elect to individual salvation. Now, of course, Jesus did say in His high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 2, He says, Father, You have given Him authority, speaking of Himself, You've given Him authority over all flesh 
that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So it's true, Jesus has all authority as the king over his church and as the head over all things for the church. He has all authority for the purpose of gathering his elect. There's no question that that's the focus and the emphasis of his universal authority. But it's clear that in gathering his elect, he's building a church that's a city on a hill that's salt and light in the world and that has a preserving and illuminating function within society at large. Because even in that same high priestly prayer, Jesus says, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Notice there, Jesus is the great high priest, but he's made his people a kingdom of priests. Even as he was sanctified and sent into the world by the Father, Even so, He sanctifies and consecrates His people and sends them into an adverse, hostile environment. He says, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify Myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So Jesus intercedes for His church as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, to intercede and to be a faithful witness in this hostile environment environment so that God's will would be done getting back to the Lord's prayer and the Sermon on the Mount God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven notice that third petition of the Lord's prayer is not limited to the church it's God's will would be done in earth as it is in heaven throughout all the earth throughout every human institution every society every nation Throughout all the earth, Jesus commands us to pray that God's will, His law, His commandments, His doctrine, all these things would be kept pure and entire and obeyed and believed in all the earth. This heavenly submission, worshipful obedience, even as the angels in heaven. Uh, And so you can see there that, that there's a clear mandate from Christ that we take the gospel to all the earth and that we influence the entire world to obey Him. Now, Matthew 12 builds on this theme. Matthew 12, verse 28. Jesus has been casting out demons and His opponents among the Pharisees are accusing Him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus says, verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house, that's Satan, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Now, Jesus here is speaking, I believe, of individual liberation of sinners from the power of Satan. That's what he's doing right now in his ministry. He's casting out demons from individual people. The demons are living inside these people as a house. You can see that imagery 
uh, further along in the chapter where you have verses 43 through 45 uh, where you have this demon who lives inside of a man as his house and then he leaves and then he comes back to his house. But Jesus is saying, I'm casting out demons who are dwelling, taking residence in people's lives. I'm authoritatively and powerfully casting them out, liberating these people and filling them with my Holy Spirit. And that means that I have greater authority than Satan. Not only am I not in league with Satan, I'm actually dominating Satan in this spiritual conflict that I have against him. Jesus is irreversibly liberating individual sinners from demonic oppression. And he says, Satan is the strong man who took ownership of them, who inhabits them. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the stronger man who is establishing his kingdom in the hearts of each person. And I think we can say that this imagery appears elsewhere in the scriptures. Now we need to be careful. Revelation 20, it speaks of Satan being bound and then loosed. I don't think we want to associate that with what's happening in Matthew 12. The reason being that what's happening in Matthew 12 concerning the liberation of sinners individually cannot be undone, right? Jesus doesn't cast Satan out and bind him and then you know, all of a sudden lets him back into somebody's life. Uh, that could be true of a demon that just freely comes and goes. As I say later in the chapter, it describes that. Uh, But the the binding here in Matthew 12 is irreversible. So it's not identical to Revelation 20 and the binding of Satan for a thousand years. Uh, But at the same time, it does bring to our attention the fact that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Uh, Why wouldn't he be? He's the eternal, omnipotent God. And now as the God-man, he's been given all power and authority to advance his kingdom, to build his church, and to defeat the kingdom of Satan. And so he's the stronger man when it comes to individual sinners binding Satan and casting him out when it comes to advancing his kingdom among the nations of the world and binding Satan's ability to dominate nations with his deceptive agenda and binding Satan in a way that the gospel freely comes in and brings that nation into captivity to the Lord Jesus Christ and then perhaps at a future time, loosing Satan. And there's a give and a take in terms of that uh, uh, global picture that's not there in the the individual picture. But uh, Matthew 12 says Christ is stronger than Satan. Again, this is optimistic language. This is language that should cause us to look at the opposition we see in the world today. And there's no doubt whose fingerprints are all over the wickedness and perversion and idolatry in our day. Uh, from one end of the world to the other. It's Satan. He's the God of this world. But you see, the real God of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ, is stronger and at will can bind and does bind Satan to redeem individual sinners and to uh, hold back his deceptive tactics and bring in gospel revival. Uh, These are things we need to think about, especially when Paul tells us to pray for those who are in positions of authority. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. We're commanded to pray and intercede and give thanks on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Well, if God our Savior, the Lord Jesus, has all power, and He's stronger than Satan, who's at work among powers and principalities, wickedness in high places, right? Satan's pulling the levers, pulling the strings among wicked rulers and tyrants throughout the world. The Scriptures tell us that. Uh, And so, if we're to pray that leaders and people in high positions would be converted and that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And Jesus says, with respect even to individuals, He has stronger power than Satan, then we need to be encouraged. I mean, do the math. Jesus can do it. It's good and acceptable in His eyes to do it. And we're commanded to pray for it. So let's pray. And let's labor. And let's trust that, in fact, God will bring these things about. It's an optimistic outlook. We go on to chapter 13 of Matthew, where the parables that we just read in our Scripture reading are set forth to us. Two parables, one after the other, that go together. You see this in the uh, dreams of Joseph. The two dreams are one, right? Two dreams to confirm one main thesis. Uh, You have this in, in other other instances too. Toward the end of Matthew 13, you have the parable of the hidden treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. These twin parables that communicate basically the same message. Well, that's what we have in verses 31 and following of Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus tells a parable, verse 31, uh, of he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Uh, which he says indeed is the least of all the seeds, the tiniest seed, and it's not the sort of thing that would be impressive. A mustard seed is virtually uh, nothing to write home about. It's insignificant. And yet, a man takes it and sows it in his field. Again, just one seed. I mean, a a handful of mustard seeds would be nothing. He's got one seed, and he places it and sows it in the field. Uh, And we're told when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Uh, What's that telling us? Well, it's telling us that the church started small. It started with about 100 or so people, 120 people in the upper room in Jerusalem at Pentecost, a tiny sect of the Jews as they were considered at that time. And yet, they were planted, and they were multiplied, and they grew. And, and, and the kingdom of Christ, between that first century day of Pentecost and our own day, has grown immeasurably. Yes, with many ups and downs, you know, one step forward, two steps back, with various periods of decline and darkness, yet, sure enough, Christ's kingdom has been growing and is utterly massive compared to when it first began. And as we've seen from these various prophecies, it's, it's nowhere near the full extent of what the Bible prophesies. But the fact is, Jesus is saying it starts small and it grows large. And the imagery He uses for the expansion of His kingdom is very interesting. He says it becomes this great tree 
and that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now that reminds us of something we read about last time in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 12 where Nebuchadnezzar is compared to a great tree. Obviously he gets cut down and there's this whole uh, business surrounding his humiliation and then his conversion. But he's presented there. He and his kingdom are presented as this monumental tree, this kingdom that rules over all the nations and kingdoms of men. Uh, Daniel 4, verse 12, its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. That's talking about the universal influence of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon throughout all the nations of the known world at that time. Jesus is using that language, again, hearkening back to Daniel that His kingdom would not just be this tiny faction of us four and no more hiding out in the shadows, but after the history unfolds, His kingdom would be as this stone that breaks the image, but it grows into a mighty mountain throughout all the earth. His kingdom would prevail against all the humanistic kingdoms before it, and all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples would serve Him. And Jesus uses that language that His kingdom will be a kingdom of worldwide dominion akin to Nebuchadnezzar in His own day. He was a king of kings. The kings of various localized nations reported to Nebuchadnezzar. They looked to him as the king of kings. And that's how the nations of the world, Jesus says, will one day look to him as the king of kings. He strengthens this then with the parable of the leaven. He says that the kingdom of heaven, again, is just this little insignificant pinch of leaven. Right? The woman takes it and hides it. She takes the leaven, and you'll see just that imagery. It's hidden. The church, when it began, was hidden. Uh, in one sense, these things were not done in a corner, but in another sense, there was not a lot of publicity uh, with the early church. Uh, they, they were not even really fully understood by the Roman government for quite a while. They thought they were just a sect of the Jews. Uh, and so, this tiny little group hidden away in the three measures of meal, hidden away. Jesus says, I'm not going to take you out of the world. I'm going to place you in the world. And here they are, and they're insignificant. And now, here we are in 2023, about to celebrate a new year, 2024, in a culture that refuses to acknowledge the significance of the one for whom we calculate our years. Right? Why is it going to be 2024 when that ball drops? Why is that the case? It's not because of Muhammad or Buddha. It's not because of uh, you know, Karl Marx or uh, you know, Chairman Mao or something like that. It's Jesus Christ. It's the birth of Jesus Christ that forms the basis of our global calendar. I'd say the church has come a long way. And I'm not speaking in terms of triumphalism. I realize things are not getting better at this moment. Things are getting worse. 
Uh, but even as things are getting worse, we're, we're a lot further along. When we started here, right, we're going down and we're here. Going down here, but we started here, right? We're still a lot better off than when we started. The entire global calendar is named after Jesus of Nazareth. That's a win, okay? And we need to remind people of that around the new year. What, why is it 2024? Oh, are you a Christian? Do you understand? This is the year of our Lord. Do you know what that means? Anno Domini. Did you know that Jesus is Lord? You can begin a conversation that way. It may not be appreciated, but again, um, that's not always our, our criteria, is it? But uh, Jesus gives us this outlook. It's going to be this massive expansion. He also brings this to bear in chapter 16 of Matthew. Chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus has quizzed his disciples, his apostles, midway through his training of them for the ministry, midway through his ministry to them, he asked them, who do men say that I am, and who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And famously, Peter answers on behalf of the whole group. Uh, he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus proceeds to pronounce a blessing on Peter, and then he says this, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. So he says to Peter, uh, you've made this confession, and he says on this rock, and people want to debate, you know, what's the rock? Uh, that Jesus is talking about. Well, it could be Peter as an apostle. We know from Ephesians 2 verse 20 that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church with Christ as the cornerstone. So it could be in a sense that Peter, whose name means rock, as that's designated here, uh, it could be that Peter as an apostle, in some sense, is a foundation of the church. It certainly could be the truth concerning Christ, the word of Christ, the teaching of Christ, which he says in the Sermon on the Mount is like a foundation that the wise man builds upon. He builds upon the rock of Christ's teaching, his word, the truth that Peter had just confessed. This is certainly the rock and the foundation of our lives as Christians and of the church. Also, Jesus most likely is speaking of himself as the rock. Again, the apostles are the the foundation of the kingdom, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Even Peter himself in his epistles speaks of Christ as the chief cornerstone, as the, the stone that the builders rejected that has become head of the corner from Psalm 118. So uh, Jesus is establishing the foundation of the apostolic word that he has revealed and ultimately of himself. But the key that we're going to focus on, it, well, he's not saying the Pope, by the way. Let's be clear about that. Um, and if, if people try to say, well, it's Peter, and, and in that same sense, because Peter became the Bishop of Rome, which at least they claim is the case, and then the Pope is the Bishop of Rome, then if somebody says that, you can respond to them, well, would you apply everything in this chapter to the Pope? that Jesus says to Peter. Because, of course, just a few verses later, when Peter violates the Word of God, Jesus rebukes him 
and says, get behind me, Satan. So I guess, you know, ask a Roman Catholic if, so whenever the Pope violates the Bible, we're allowed to refer to him as Satan then too. Is that, that seems to be consistent. Um, anyway, at least you'll get them confused for a while and you can pull out your gospel track. But, but the fact is, Jesus says something here important. He says, I will build my church. These are perhaps the five most important words in our English Bible as it relates to our theme in this sermon series. Jesus Christ, the head and king of the church, says, I will build my church. And each of those words is important. He says, I will build my church. In other words, he is the greater Solomon. He will build the temple of the Lord, 2 Samuel 7.13. He will build his church, uh, not by human might or power, but Christ by his spirit. He will build the church. And so we don't have to use gimmicks. We don't have to pander and use shameless tactics to try to fill the pews and try to build the church. Uh, because Jesus said he'll do it. We just need to follow his instructions, uh, teach and preach and uh, administer the sacraments in a biblical way and, and use the keys of his kingdom and teach people to observe what he has commanded. He says, I'll build the church. You don't have to build the church. Of course, Paul says he's a wise master builder, but ultimately it's Christ through Paul building the church. Paul's job is just to do what Jesus said and Jesus will give the increase. I will build my church. Uh, it's very practical for us. We don't see the fruit we'd like to see. And sometimes we can become overburdened by this and sometimes be tempted to, to engage in various ministries and various things to where we're bending over backwards, overexerting ourselves. And, and, and we're missing the fundamental responsibilities God's given us in the Christian life. Uh, we don't see the conversions we'd like to see. That doesn't mean quit your job and go be a traveling evangelist or neglect your family to go be an evangelist. We need to make time and we can all put more time into our outreach ministries. But at the end of the day, we do what God's called us to do and we trust that Jesus will build his church. He'll take the loaves and fishes and multiply our efforts we don't have to get desperate, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Also, he says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Uh, Jesus is making an assertion here. He's really guaranteeing that he will finish the job. We've seen the blueprint throughout the Old Testament. All nations, tribes, tongues, languages. Jesus will finish the job. I will build my church. I guarantee it. And just like Solomon, when we say Solomon built the temple, what do we mean? We mean he finished building it. 1 Kings 6.14. He built it. It wouldn't say that he built it if he built half of it and then did something different. Jesus is not going to build his kingdom as described in these passages halfway and then return and bring in the second coming. Jesus, like Solomon, is going to finish the construction of this spiritual temple in the Lord. He's going to build his historical militant church on earth. 
He's going to cause all the prophecies of nations and kings bowing down to Him to be fulfilled. He's going to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. He's going to cause all Israel to be saved. He will build His church according to the biblical blueprint. And, and there ought to be no question in our mind about that. He asserts it here uh, directly and distinctly. I will build My church. And He says, I will build My church That is the visible church on earth. The very next verse, he talks about the keys of the kingdom. Uh, And we know from other passages, the keys of the kingdom at the very least involve the preaching of the word, declaring uh, what the message of salvation is and who it is that has a right to claim forgiveness of sins and who it is that fits the description of those under the wrath of God. We preach the gospel and the law and, and God uses it. Uh, to bind and loose, and of course, church discipline, the keys of the kingdom, opening and closing visible privileges within the church. Uh, And so he's dealing here, when he speaks of his kingdom, uh, he's speaking of the church. When he speaks of the church, he's speaking of his kingdom, because his kingdom is the visible church on earth. And so we can speak of salt and light and leaven by way of the church's influence in the world, and we can speak of Christian culture and Christian nations and Christian families and uh, Christian societies, Christian politics. We can speak of these things, but we need to understand Christ is not saying, I will build any particular Christian political movement or Christian political agenda. He's building His church. His church will have that influence as it goes out into these various institutions and spheres. Uh, But He's building His church first and foremost, fundamentally, uh, here in this passage. And we need to realize that. The focus is people being converted, discipled, worshiping God as we heard in the psalm meditation, and then organically going out as salt and light and having a transforming influence in the world. That influence is secondary and it flows out of the primary uh, priority here on salvation and worship in the church. He also says, I will build my church. So when you hear people saying, look at the advance of Christianity and society and Look at all the billions of Christians you have. Well, here's the number of Protestant evangelicals and here's the number of Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Mormons and they add it all up and they're saying, you see, look, God's kingdom is so deep and wide and broad. And No, Jesus didn't say He would build Satan's synagogue. He he said, I'll build my church. So these prophecies are not fulfilled through moralistic pseudo-Christian cults and false churches and synagogues of Satan, but Jesus says, I will build my church, the true church. And it is His church. It's not our church. It's not the Pope's church. It's not uh, the RPCNA Synod's church. It's not the Sessions or the Pastor's church. It's Christ's church. And He will build His church. Uh, So there's, again, a, a very strong optimism here. I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, so much could be said about the context of this verse. And Jesus was up in Caesarea Philippi, near uh, some, some monuments of idolatry, perhaps even including this gate of Hades. But 
Suffice to say, he's saying all of Satan's opposition will be overcome and will fail. And notice it's the gates of hell. It's not the onslaught of hell that will fail. It's not the charge and the offensive military attack of Satan against the people of God that causes the people of God to be beaten down into a small, tiny remnant and and Satan's banging on the doors surrounding the city and, well, he just won't get in. And so there will be survivors among the Christian church. And not everyone's going to be put to death in a bloody persecution. That's not true. That's That's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's saying Satan will be on the defensive. Satan will be hiding behind the gates. And the gates signify civil government, civil authority. And oftentimes this is where Satan sets his throne and he hides behind it. But the fact is, the Christian church will be built and the gospel will tear down those walls and will make great progress in destroying and pushing back the kingdom of Satan throughout this age. And Satan can do nothing to prevent it. We go then to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, Jesus has pronounced the seven woes against the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and he appeals to these unconverted Jews in Jerusalem who have refused to believe and confess his name. He appeals to them, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem! The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, that's a a pretty dark uh, presentation of, of the situation here. He's saying you've rejected the free offer of grace You've turned it down. You've hardened your hearts. And you shall, at this point, you're not entering into my rest. I was willing, but you were not. Uh, And he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. The temple is going to be destroyed and desolated. And your kingdom is going to be taken from you. And, you know, they, they murdered Jesus because they said they didn't want to lose their place in their nation. And the fact of the matter is they lost both by the end of it. But then listen to what he says. A glimmer of hope. For I say to you, you shall see me no more. He's speaking to Jerusalem here. Jerusalem and the ethnic Jews who are the natural branches on the olive tree that Paul says have been cut off for their unbelief. But he speaks to them, as it were, down through the ages. Those whose house was left desolate, the ethnic Jews, cut off for their unbelief. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. Uh, God willing, we're going to spend a lot of time on Romans 11 uh, in a a future sermon. But Jesus is here declaring that the Jewish people in large measure will come to a place, even you could argue in Jerusalem itself, which in God's providence, there happen to be Jews in Jerusalem in our day, but that's a whole other question. But uh, that the Jews, the ethnic Jews who have rejected him for so many years, that eventually, prior to the time when they see him at the second coming, 
they will confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they'll be singing the Psalms and they will be applying them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 118, the, the stone the builders rejected who's become the chief cornerstone, they will as a people confess that prior to when they see the face of Christ at the second coming. The Jewish people will confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of Jehovah. They will acknowledge Christ as their Messiah. And uh, for the sake of time, we'll just uh, defer the rest of that to to our section on Romans 11 at a future time. Uh, But let's plow ahead to Romans 24, 14. Uh, We've made ample reference to this in one of the early sermons in the series, so I'll simply draw your attention to the verse itself. Here, Jesus has described the new covenant age and the various events and patterns of conduct and uh, these various patterns of providence that are going to be taking place following His ascension into heaven. And He says, don't think it's the end. Jerusalem's destroyed, it's not the end. Wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. The end is not yet. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, coronavirus, earthquakes... Don't think it's the end times. The end is not yet. It's just the beginning. But then he says, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So again, similar to the previous chapter, yes, he's going to return, but before he returns, the Jewish people are going to say, blessed is he who comes Before He returns, the Gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So there's a great optimism, a great confidence that Jesus has in the advance of the Great Commission prior to the Second Coming. Uh, We're definitely not going to reach the end until all the world and all the nations, all the ethnic groups hear the gospel. And of course, we have thousands of unreached people groups, even down to our own day. So there's a lot of work to be done. And we're nowhere near the completion of that mission. Uh, Some people say, well, that word there uh, in verse 14, all the world is not the word cosmos, the typical word for world, it's oikomene, they say. And so it just means the inhabited earth, the Roman Empire. And then they try to say, well, the gospel was preached in the Roman Empire in the first century, so it's all fulfilled. Uh, But that's the same word that's used in Acts 17.31 when it says Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. So this word oikomene can absolutely mean the whole world. And Jesus seems to qualify it here to make it clear by using great commission language that uh, they will be a witness to all the nations a witness to all the nations using that same language that he uses for the Great Commission. So if you take the view that Matthew 24, 14 has been fulfilled in the first century and it's all over, then logically you'd have to say, well, then the Great Commission's over as well. And uh, well, if you want to go there, uh, that's a, a position where, where angels uh, fear to tread. I, I, would, I would be careful with that because it's clear from the Scriptures that the Great Commission was not fulfilled in the first century, not even close. Uh, There's a long way to go, uh, which leaves us then, leads us to finally the Great Commission itself, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
Jesus, in this Gospel of Matthew, is presented in this last recorded statement as emphasizing His universal authority and the advance of His global kingdom. As I said, this is, the, this is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the gospel of Christ's kingship. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus, as the God-man, now says he's been authorized by the Father in his exalted kingship as the risen Savior and as the soon-to-be-ascended Lord, that he's going to be authorized now to advance his kingdom among all nations. And he's going to do that with this power and authority. He's going to do that through the gospel. Preach the gospel to every creature, it says in one of the other gospel accounts. Here he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Notice he doesn't say go therefore and start a Christian cultural institute or a think tank or a political party. It doesn't mean those things are wrong. It just means that the fundamental thrust of the, the dominion strategy and, and really the dominion approach of Christ is the word and sacraments, the church, evangelism, discipleship, biblical doctrine, biblical practice. These things then go forth with the people of God into those institutions. But he says, go therefore and Literally in Greek, it's not make disciples of all the nations, but disciple the nations. See, the language that's used here makes it sound as if Jesus is saying, make, make a few disciples among this vast nation. Go make some disciples among the nations. And so, if you've made some disciples, maybe 0.0004% of your society is converted, hey, you've fulfilled it, you've made disciples among the nations. That's not what he's saying. He's saying disciple the people groups. Disciple the entire nations of the world and all the nations, all the ethnic groups of which many are yet unreached. Baptizing them. So you're discipling them. You're administering the Word, the sacraments. Baptizing them into the church in the name of our triune God. Teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. Notice it's not just teaching them all that Christ has commanded. I mean, what good is that if we don't teach people to observe what Christ has commanded? Uh, they're, They're teaching people here to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus gives a a measure of confidence here. He gives a stamp of His own guarantee to the success of this great commission. And He does it by invoking the divine name, I Am. We looked at that in our Sabbath school lecture. He says, Lo, ego emi. Lo, I Am. Same exact phraseology He uses in John 8.58 where he claims the divine name. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am Jehovah. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the new covenant age. Even to the fulfillment and the success and the prosperity of this great commission to disciple the nations. Uh, And we're told, Isaiah 42.4, that the Lord Jesus Christ 
simply will not be denied. We get discouraged very often, but the Lord Jesus Christ will not be frustrated in this endeavor. Uh, Isaiah 42, 4, He will not fail nor be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth. It would be amazing if He established justice in the church, let alone the world. But He's saying He's not going to fail. He's not going to be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. That's us in some sense. Far off in the new world. The coastlands shall wait for His law. My friends, Jesus promises that He will finish the job. And there's great reason to be confident Uh, There are some objections, however, that we sometimes hear. We'll deal with these in a separate sermon. Um, But uh, there are some people who say, well, uh, few will be saved or something like that. We'll deal with that at a future time. But I want you to see the clear teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ here. All nations will be discipled. All people groups will hear the gospel. And the gospel of the kingdom will go to all nations of the world. His kingdom will be a globally influential kingdom, salt, light, and leaven, that leavens the lump, that illuminates the world, that salts the earth, that grows up into a mighty tree, a la Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and it will fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord our God, impress the words of our King deep into our hearts that we would rise from this place encouraged, ready to do Your will, even as our Lord said that You opened His ear and gave Him a ready and willing and obedient ear. We pray that You would do the same for us. That we would hear that call, that great commission. And that we would be confident and bold toward the end of 2023 and into the new year, uh, Lord willing, 2024, enable us to proclaim that it is indeed the year of our Lord who reigns from heaven and who will be glorified on the earth. We pray this in His name. Amen.